Listener Production. Tara Moss packs a lot of life into the limited hours in her day. She's a best-selling Canadian and Australian author who has written 14 books. Yeah, that's right, 14 books, spanning a bunch of different genres. Tara began her working life as a teenager, modelling, but soon gave that career away despite her considerable success. She said that modelling was what other people told her she should do with her life. And after leaving the industry, she found pursuits that were in line with her own passions. In addition to her books, Tara is a documentary maker, she's a television presenter, a journalist, and most recently, a disability advocate. In this episode, we unpack everything from body image to chronic pain to raising daughters to Tara's work ethic to the loss of her beautiful mum when Tara was still a very young person. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Bron and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my conversation with the inimitable Tara Moss. Tara Moss, welcome to The Weekend Briefing, all the way from the other side of the world. It's lovely to see your face. It's so great to see you. Thank you so much for having me on to have a chat. And yes, greetings from sunny and summery Canada. You know, I can even feel the sun. Like there's not a window in your in your backdrop on Zoom at the moment, but I can somehow still feel that there's sunshine yeah. hitting you from one angle or another. I think it must be the slight sweat sort of glistening on my, yeah, it's probably the dewy, the dewy look of my skin. Well, from freezing cold Melbourne, it looks really, really nice. I've got to say that. Congratulations on your, and I can't even believe I'm saying this, on your 14th book, The Ghost of Paris. I want to start by asking the obvious for anyone listening, which is 14 is a lot. So tell me about your process of writing and what makes you keep coming back for more? Well, this is year number 23 for me in publishing. My first novel, Fetish, came out in 1999, but I've been writing since I was like 10, probably younger than 10, actually. But um, my dad, I'm actually at my dad's house. He's right over there in the chair. My dad found some of my early writings, and it was uh, writing for classmates in elementary school, at age 10. So I always say that I started writing as a 10-year-old because that was the first time I had a reading audience. No, no one is ever allowed to read those now, but (laughs) I wrote sort of Stephen King-style novelettes. I'm sure before then I was writing as well, but it was that kind of moment in the 80s where Stephen King was really exciting. And I mean, he continues to be, but there was that kind of moment Um, Mm. that moment actually that Stranger Things is drawing upon where, you know, there's that kind of Stephen King universe. And that was part of what made me want to write stories is to make them exciting and to kind of draw people in and be a bit spooky and write about things that are a little bit taboo. So my first reading audience were fellow 10 year olds, but um, the Ghost of Paris is number 14 of like properly published professional work. And I don't know if it feels like it's been longer than that or it feels like it's gone by quickly. I can't even say. Uh, Depends on what stage of the next novel I'm in where it feels like this is taking forever or or, gosh, this is my 15th time doing this. What a breeze. Um, I'm writing my 15th at the moment 
it's usually two years between books for me. Sometimes it's been a year and a half. I've never quite succeeded in being one of those book a year authors. Publishers love those because then you can really get some momentum. I've never quite been able to do that, but I think a book every two years is solid. And it, for me, it's sustainable because it means I can still learn new things and have new experiences between works. Mm. And I think that's really important. So you always have something new to say and new to bring to the writing. And I've written in four different genres, so I guess that has proved to be true for me, right? Um, I'm really interested in human experiences. I'm really interested in the world. There's just not enough time to kind of learn everything and experience everything that I'd like to. So hence I've written a crime genre, the paranormal, nonfiction and historical fiction uh, or historical noir or mystery is this new series with Billy Walker. And I know it's unusual to write fiction and nonfiction as a writer. Usually someone sticks to one or the other, but I think that sort of speaks to the fact that I'm in here for the long haul. I'm just really interested in human stories and I will tell them in whatever kind of format feels like it's the most compelling. We often associate research with nonfiction, right? We think about all of the research work that goes into writing a, mm. a piece of nonfiction. And the, the fictional woman, uh, which uh, you wrote in 2014, is one of – I r- still remember where I was, what I was wearing when I, was, when I devoured that book and it really oh, stuck wow. with me. But I want to yeah. start by asking about the research that you do for your fiction work because you, you don't hold back, girl, do you? <laughs> I do not hold back. Um, Like I said, I'm super interested in human experiences and I certainly pushed myself to experience some things that others maybe wouldn't put their hand up for. So I've been choked unconscious for research. Do not try this at home, ladies and gentlemen, and people who are non-binary, do not try it. Don't. Um, Because it's quite dangerous. I wouldn't do it a second time. Um, I've been set on fire, obviously not at the same time, because that would have been too much for a weekend. Far out. Um, Also, I probably wouldn't do that again, but this was research for my work and I needed to know what that experience was like. And for me, being able to write from the perspective of a character experiencing that, Mm. for me, I'll kind of go to whatever lengths I can, um, short of probably ending up in jail, although that's not out of the question entirely. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of, yeah, I think seeing autopsies and going to morgues, that's been really important yeah. for my work, actually, because not only because the characters had those experiences, but it also has given me insight into, I guess, victims of crime and their families, just yes, bringing that home, which I think is, a, is certainly in my crime writing has been very important. But even in The Ghost of Paris, you know, there there's a, a scene in the Paris morgue, there's the aftermath of World War II. There's lives that have been blown apart and changed by violence, uh, the violence of war. So I think that getting really close to those issues does a service to the authenticity of the work, brings authenticity, but also maybe just a bit of more of a respectful uh, perspective on retelling some of those stories of the past or, or touching on those stories of the past. So, yeah, I've done four point. Five G's, I think it is, doing loops over the Sydney Opera House with the RAAF. Yeah, if it's kind of like, yeah, I got my race car driver's license. I think I read you've got 
uh, you've got private investigator credentials. I do. I, I am. Uh, I've got the credentials as a PI. And that's important because actually I'm writing a PI character. I mean, she's in the 1940s. So what's interesting is she actually didn't even require the training that I got. All right, let me take a little bit of a step back because I think uh, for anyone who was unfamiliar with you coming into this uh, podcast, they uh, very much have will have established by now that you are uh, quite the overachiever, um, <laughs> but also that you've got a you've got a real busyness to your life, like a throwing yourself into things, a real enthusiasm yeah. for a whole range of activities in your world. Where do you think that came from? Is that something about the way you were raised? I'm sure that it had to do with the way I was raised, but I'll be honest, I think it had to do with when my life turned from the idyllic childhood. I mean, all idyllic childhoods end by nature of the fact that childhood ends, but mine was like a, that ending was very specific. Um, my mother, Janie, passed away from cancer um, when I was a young person, and that really like lit a fire under me. You know, I wasn't yet a woman. And all of a sudden I wanted to be adult. I wanted to be achieving things. I wanted her belief in me and her sacrifice for me because she underwent a bone marrow transplant as one of the first people in the world to have a bone marrow plant transplant for multiple myeloma back in 1990. And she underwent that because she was so, well, she wanted to be around for her family. She wanted to be around for her daughters and for, you know, for her husband and wanted to, and for herself. But I think that experience of kind of recognizing that bad things also happen to good people, that there's no guarantees in life and you don't know how long you've got, it just lit a fire under me that hasn't gone out. I just feel like, I need to learn everything and I need to, obviously I can't learn everything and I don't know everything, you know, but I need to try. It's like, I need to just go and do an experience and make the most out of the time I have. Cause I'm now older than my mom was when she passed away. So I feel like yeah, I'm wow. kind of on extra time, you know, and yeah. I have to make something of every day. Yeah. You um, have your own daughter now, Safira. Yeah. You're someone who's written about feminism and we'll explore that in, in a moment. When she was born, did the depth of your understanding of what it means to be a girl in the world, mm. does that make you scared for her or hopeful? I just felt really excited to have her in my life. And I'll be honest, when she walks in the room, I often feel like she's the oldest soul in the room, even <laughs> though she's the youngest person. So. I'm kind of like living with joy of just knowing her and learning from her. Yes, sometimes I get very upset about what's happening in the broader world and what the position is for women and girls. And that can be really hard, you know, just, just yeah. coming to terms with that. And, and with the changes we're seeing happening in the world today, yeah, definitely. But overall, I just feel so happy to be able to spend time with her. Like, she's really cool. Like, she's <laughs> surprising and funny. And I'm glad that I get to have this experience with her, I guess is what I'm saying. So I I feel like young people like her are kind of part of the future. 
Mm. And maybe they can do a better job with it in some ways, Mm. you know? Yeah. I I reckon one of the most common questions um, that comes up for women who write and work in the feminist space is audience members who call or write or speak to Mm -hmm. you about their own daughters and ask for advice on how how to raise their daughters to feel confident, to be free of, you know, the body image pressures, to feel safe in the world, to feel proud in the world. What Mm -hmm. do you say when you get those questions? Well, consent is really important. And I think talking about consent from a young age, normalizing discussions of consent, I think are just, just like really good solid foundation for all children, no matter what gender they might be or how they might identify. I think that's really important. And I've got a little story about when Safira was like three years old and we went into a supermarket and you know, she's this beautiful, blonde, blue-eyed young lady, and uh, she's a girl, sorry, she was three. I think of her as a young lady already at 11, but she, you know, she was three, and this older woman came over really kindly and bent over and looked down and said, oh, you're so pretty. And Safira looked up, put her hands on her hips, and said, I'm very smart and brave, too. <laughs> And I was just like, wow, you know, just the fact that she was like, that compliment, but it's not everything I am. Let me tell you. And she had her hands on her hips and I was like, oh, I feel like I'm doing something right. You know, I feel like there's something there where she can recognize the different aspects of herself and what she has to offer. Now, none of us is just one thing and none of us has just one thing to offer. And she is brave and courageous. She is really bright. She's a smart, interesting person. And I think if we treat our children as human beings who have, and first of all, that main thing, like human beings, like they're full people, you know, yeah. to, to not play that down, to really respect that they need autonomy and need to be, understand that they can speak out about consent and need to be able to express themselves. I think when we respect that and respect that they have different, lots of different things to offer, I think we're, we can't hide them away from all the problems in life, but we are recognizing and supporting them with the tools that they have at their disposal from within and around them. If we, Mm. if we, you know, celebrate those different aspects of themselves. I think that that's going to just help. Mm. And that's all we can try to do. We can never get it at a hundred percent. Right. But we can do what we can basically. And, you know, I think that lesson that, uh, you know, you may be a, a beautiful child, but if your self-worth is born only of that fact, mm. Like beauty fades, right? At some stage of your life, you're going to have to confront the fact that that's probably something you won't hold forever. And for some of it, some of us, that can be immediate and confronting when things change about our bodies, or it can be a slow process. But Mm. either way, if that's the only thing you value about yourself, you're setting yourself up for a world of pain and a world of angst. But also, um, being beautiful is wonderful. We can all appreciate beauty in the world, you know, whether mm. it's a flower or, you know, a sunset or a, a, a person who happens to be beautiful. But 
we don't want to encourage people, and I'm going to say particularly women and girls, but, you know, we don't want to encourage anyone to live their life as a kind of observer on the outside of themselves, looking at their superficial outside all the time and trying to kind of think about what other people see. Being an observer floating out there means you're not participating fully in your life. You're not in your own body and and world experiencing the world we're in. Like you don't want to be a painting. Yeah. Right? Don't be the painting. Be the human beings who look at it and go, oh, that's beautiful. And here's something else over here. And walk out into the world and experience the real thing. And having been someone who worked as a model in the past, I have some conception of what that's like. It was privilege as well and gave me great opportunities, ability to travel and, you know, earn some of my own money at a young age, you know, when it worked and, (laughs) and learn what it was like when it didn't work as well. Yeah. Great lessons, but you don't want to be an observer of yourself. You want to be yourself. And that uh, obsession with how we look on the outside has those pitfalls to look out for, you know? Probably the most confronting time of my life in reconsidering how I look and how the world sees me or, as you say, thinking about how I see myself rather than living within myself was around becoming quite unwell and then and then disabled in early 2018. You're someone who's been using a wheelchair and a walking stick now and then between the last sort of six years maybe. Tell me about that. I had a hip injury in 2016 that mm-hmm. radically changed my life um, when it became complex regional pain syndrome. So complex regional pain syndrome is relatively rare. I've met a lot of people with it, but it's not super common. So there's not a great understanding of it. It's characterized most prominently by pain, hence the term. Um, The McGill pain scale rates it as the highest type of pain that people can experience above amputation and childbirth, which is... Uh, You know, I think rating these things, of course, in a regular day setting is not really helpful because pain is pain, right? But that is to say that it is a really difficult condition to live with. And um, I kind of feel constantly like I'm on fire. Um, I have ipsilateral um, CRPS spread, which means it started in the right hip and went down to the full right leg, which is when I started using the wheelchair more frequently than the walking stick. And then last year it spread upwards. It's now uh, the full right side of my body, like a ruler going down the center. So my, like my cheek and my ear, my Mm. right arm and all of that stuff. And it affects various body systems, which is the complex and complex regional pain syndrome that it affects, you know, it's it's the peripheral and central nervous systems. It's the immune system. It's the autonomic nervous system. There's a whole variety, a whole constellation of, of different symptoms that you get. So for me, mobility aids are like freedom machines. They allow me to be able to continue functioning and participating in life particularly like getting out of the house because there were a few years there where I actually did not get out very much. I kept trying to figure out what would work and I kept trying to get care and I kept hoping that it would be over soon. Like, 
you're supposed to kind of rest up, eat properly. I wasn't getting better. So now I recognize a whole variety of things I need to do to help self-manage. I do all the things, like all the things, you know, and I think a lot of people, and you'll probably have this experience as well, a lot of us are spoonies, you know, uh, we only have so many spoons that we can spend in a day. Um, a lot of us with chronic illness have to, you know, manage a dynamic disability. It changes, yeah. changes depending on a whole uh, spectrum of different factors and bodies are never static. That's just not a thing anyway. A perfectly healthy, if you will, or able-bodied, if you want to use that term, person will still at some point get tired and think, oh God, I can't get up from the couch or whatever. In our case, it might be like that we literally can't get up from the couch. Yeah. But just because we got up from the couch two hours earlier doesn't mean we're faking it when we can't get up from the couch later, right? And I guess it's trying to, um, as someone in the public eye trying to speak about this stuff, break down some of the taboos and stigma, I think... I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it for my daughter. I'm doing it for the millions of people with disabilities and chronic illnesses who are misunderstood. But I'm also doing it for the kind of slightly younger me who just just did not understand what was going on, couldn't understand why I wasn't get, getting better and didn't know what tools might be available. And now I'm like, well, part of my day, I'm going to be in my wheelchair. Part of the day, I'm going to use Wolfie, my walking stick. Which is the, the most incredible looking walking stick I've ever seen in my life. Isn't she cool? So I'm showing Wolfie right now. She's got um, a silver looking head of a wolf, a fierce looking wolf. And actually this uh, cane strap is made from a chain by a reader, by one of my fans who brought it to a book signing. And I proudly use that all the time. If you have a walking stick, I do love a cane strap for it because then you don't fall, have it fall on the ground nearly as often. My yeah. cane is always like clanging to the ground somewhere. So that reduces it and just happens to look really cool too. Yeah. So I think just accepting that you deserve the support you need in whatever form mm -hmm. that takes. And if it means I'm in the supermarket in my wheelchair and I've got to stand up to get something off the top shelf and someone gasps behind me, I just don't care. I'm like, well, you don't mm -hmm. understand how mobility works. That's fine. It's not my mm -hmm. problem. Um mm -hmm. And it might hurt actually to stand up like that, but if I'm not going to wait around for someone to <laughs> call out for aisle 12 to get the cereal off the top shelf, everything is on the top shelf. Why is it everything? <laughs> All the good stuff. Oh, All the good stuff is out of reach. Yes. You and I have a, a particular experience, which is that we've lived a considerable portion of our lives as, again, to use that term, able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. And so it's a different experience of disability when you have lived experience to compare it to yeah. as opposed to a, a being disabled from, from birth. And not only is the experience comparable to how your body might have operated before, but how people respond to you is yeah. comparable. What, what surprised you most about how the world responds to disabled Tara compared to mm. earlier? It's interesting. Um, this is something that, you know, I really probably shouldn't advertise and say, but what one of the things that happens that's really frustrating is that everyone calls you inspiring and no one hires you. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, that is brutally true. So you become an inspiration that no one is interested in the value of anymore uh, for what you actually do. Yeah. Now, of course, there are exceptions and thank goodness for that. And 
you know, and I'm writing novels and they're bestsellers and that's great. But the amount of um, opportunity and work that I had in the past, it's, my world is unrecognizable on every level. And a lot of that actually doesn't have to do with my condition. A lot of that has to do with the condition of ableism in culture. That's reality. Brutal, but true. The things we deal with as disabled people are actually, you know, and even having a very painful condition, there are times when that, of course, is is overwhelming and totally absorbs the day. But actually, it's a lot of the other times where things are different that you just go, it just doesn't need to be like this. The world doesn't need to be this inaccessible or ableist. It just doesn't. And there are millions of people in the world impacted by that. So that's kind of where my focus is as an advocate where possible to point that out and challenge the things that we can change. You know, everyone's different. Everybody's medical situation is different and that will always be the case. But what people can bring to the table is so important and we can't just keep writing them off the moment we see that they're in a wheelchair or they've got you know, they're dealing with some medical condition. That's like literally millions and millions and millions of people. And so what happens is people try to cover up and hide their disability or chronic illness to the detriment of their life experience and participation in the world, to the detriment of their physical condition so that they can avoid being seen with a mobility aid as example or needing a day off or needing a rest or whatever it is that they their body needs because they're really afraid of experiencing that ableism. And that that's the thing. That's the thing for me that, that really gets me because that's avoidable. The other stuff, you know, hey, I'm doing like all the things that I have. I'm so lucky to every time I've got a moment where I'm like, I'm up, I'm walking around with my cane and going out of the world. I'm like the happiest person in the world with so much joy when I'm able to do those things. And I don't take any moment for granted, but it's that other stuff. I think, you know, we can actually change this and maybe even in our lifetime, let's do that. Let's do that. Tara, I have always enjoyed your writing in all of the genres that you cover, but it has been an extra special pleasure hearing you speak today and hearing your words about something that's personally uh, really close to my heart because it's something I live as well. So thank you for your advocacy as well as your creative work. And thanks for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Oh, what a total privilege. Thank you so much. It's uh, just such a lovely thing to be able to chat with yes. you. And I've been admiring you for so oh, long and admiring cool. you from far while I'm over here in Canada. So thanks for continuing to fight the good fight on so many levels. And just like, what a privilege. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Tara Moss. Her 14th book is The Ghosts of Paris. It's available at all good bookstores and probably some bad ones too. And I bet you could find those other 13 books floating around as well. I would particularly recommend The Fictional Woman, which was first published in June of 2014. Don't go away. Bron is coming up. She's jumping into the chair for the weekend list. weekend list time and Bron is here and she is going to help me to get out of my culture rut. I'm deep and I'm not consuming anything good. I'm just doing the same old stuff. I need some fun things to cook, to eat, to watch, to listen to something, Bron. What do you got? 
Well, I've got one to eat, which is perfect for wintertime at the moment. Donna Hayes brownie mixes, which you can find, I think, at most uh, big supermarket chains, particularly the molten chocolate chunk brownie. Now, these cake mixes, I'm usually not a massive fan, but with Donna Hay, it just feels a little bit fancier. It feels a little bit nicer. It feels like you're really baking something, even though you're getting a lot of extra help along the way. But yeah, it's a bit of a life hack. She also has some more recipes on the back of the packet where you can turn it into like a different dessert. Like you can turn it into a cheesecake or a molten lava cake. Um, so it feels like it's a little bit of an elevated cake mix. I like this. I, we're getting like a little bit more bougie than the kind of super cheap packet cake mix that you see from the, you know, the home brand or whatever. We're going a step up, but not stepping up so much that we would open a recipe book. No. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly it's like right. Somewhere in between. It feels like it's more achievable, right? It's yes. more achievable. I, I I love that recommendation, and I actually think Donna Hay does really good packet mixes that don't taste like packet mixes, which is exactly the point. Um, totally massive tone shift. I am going to recommend an article from The Atlantic that I read uh, this week. The Atlantic is a paid subscriber website, but you can get one article every week for free. So if you don't go there regularly, um, go check it out. It's by Derek Thompson and it's called The Biggest Problem with Remote Work. And what it does is it unpacks all of the ways that our office culture is changing and that if you're a manager of people, whether you're a manager of one person or 200 people or 2,000 people, right, uh, that you are starting to play with this idea of, well, what's the best fit? How much flexibility do we give people? How little flexibility do we give people? And what do we lose or gain by having people in the office or at home? It's the first piece that I've read that's genuinely balanced, that doesn't sort of come at this from one perspective and just fight that argument. And I think it makes a few really critical points that I found fascinating. The first one is that it says for younger people, particularly sort of grads straight out of university or school or TAFE, working from home is the biggest problem for them because these are young people who, if they're going to get promoted quickly, if they're going to move up the ranks, they need to be seen. They need that physical proximity to senior people in the company and you get or organisation or government, whatever it might be, and you can't get that from home. That's not open to you if you're at home. You just don't get that kind of like see someone at the photocopier kind of feel. So I just thought that was a really good point and something to think about particularly if you are someone younger who doesn't want to go into the office, there there are probably some benefits in there if you can make it in occasionally. And then the other point that it makes is around how you build culture online and how you build a sense of inclusion online. And it really does say that it's possible, but you've got to take some certain steps. It's a really smart, interesting article. No matter where you sit on this question, I think you'll get something out of it. My next one is a Netflix documentary. It's called White Hot, The Rise and Fall of Abercrombie and Fitch. Um, it's about the fashion brand, the American fashion brand, Abercrombie and Fitch. I don't know if it ever got took off really in Australia, but it's very uh, recognisable if you've ever been yeah. to the States, um, especially a few decades ago where they had the uh, model people out the front with their shirts off, people take photos with them. It was 
this documentary is really fascinating because it goes into how it was so popular in its prime, I think in the early 2000s, it targeted all American or so-called all American cool kids and were really exclusionary in who they didn't want wearing their brand. So they didn't go above a size large for women. Ugh. People of colour, they were saying they weren't hiring them, not because they weren't white, but not because they weren't pretty enough or hot enough to join the company. Oh dear. Disgusting stuff that they brought up in this documentary and it all leads into this court case which I won't give too much away but it's just a fascinating documentary about how the real rise of it how people were obsessed with this brand and then the real crash that happened not too long ago oh make me over Abercrombie and Fitch said we go after the cool kids if they didn't look a certain way they didn't belong in our clothing are we exclusionary? Absolutely. As a manager, you have to recruit good-looking people, and this is what good-looking is. Young, thin, and white. Abercrombie rooted themselves in discrimination at every single level. There's a reason people liked that brand. Exclusion is part of our society. Bron, you've really sold me on that one. I um, I have got completely carried away thinking with about those ideas. And yeah, I never. It's not like I never ever owned the brand or even really saw the shops or anything in Australia. But it's in my psyche, like that. It's got that real American American presence. And I love a documentary that unpacks a brand that did bad things. So it's a niche genre uh, that I, I quite enjoy. Uh, folks, I am, am a couple of weeks out of uh, having had COVID for the first time. And I know, old news, everyone's had COVID. But a lot of people right now are either getting infected with COVID again or are catching it for the first time because the numbers are going up. So my first recommendation is you should wear a mask when you are indoors in public places, everybody. But my more critical recommendation is about if you catch COVID, what you do when you're at home. I think we all know that you've got to give yourself time to rest. You've got to give yourself time to chill. So for a lot of us, that means lying in bed uh, with your laptop watching a streaming service. One of the mistakes I made really early on was I tried to watch like worthy, important television. I reckon when you are in the depths of COVID, no subtitles, Nothing that you can't sort of tune in and out of. Nothing so intellectual or plot driven that if you kind of like half fall asleep for five minutes, you can't come straight back into it. Don't push yourself too hard on the culture bit. I think the best thing you can do when you've got COVID is to watch really easy to watch, easy to pick up television. Bad soaps, terrible reality shows. That is what you are looking for. That is my recommendation to you. Do not try to be highbrow when you're in bed with coronavirus. Folks, that's it for the weekend briefing today. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure to have your company. If you have a moment at the end of this episode and you haven't already, could you think about downloading the Listener app? We make a bunch of great podcasts here at Listener. The briefing is just one of them. When you get into that Listener app, go search for us. And then if you follow us, then you'll make sure you never miss an episode. Or you can just subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us lovely ratings, lovely reviews. It'll help other people find the podcast. It'll also make me feel really happy. We will be back with you Monday morning, bright and early from 6am, where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.